please turn with me to the book of Luke. The sermon passage this morning comes from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. Following the reading of God's Word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand to hear the Word of the Lord. Hear the Word of the Lord. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Imagine you go to a high school graduation ceremony, and the valedictorian gets up to address everyone and says, upon graduation, I want to be hungry. I want to be poor. I want to be sorrowful and reviled and hated by men, and one day I want to die a shameful death. You'd probably say, what kind of valedictorian address is this? What kind of school is this? Well, welcome to the school of Jesus Christ. In his school, the last are first, and the first are last. One way to look at the Gospels is through the lens of the coming of the kingdom. God is bringing in his kingdom. In this kingdom, the last are first. The right, the right way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. There are many people in this kingdom, or the kingdom of this world, who don't deserve to be rich. There are people who are hungry who don't deserve to be hungry, people who are hated and reviled and, and spurned, and even people in jail who don't deserve to be there. It's upside down. It's not right. And we're meant to look at that and weep over the injustice Jesus gives a sermon here. Many people call it the Sermon on the Plain. Is this the same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount? Some people think so. I don't believe it is. I think it is a similar sermon, but on a different occasion with different emphases. Who are the people 
that Jesus is preaching to. Let us consider this. He has just called his 12 disciples, and they're coming down the mountain. Many other disciples come, it tells us in verse 17, large crowd of his disciples. There are a great number of people, we are told, from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. That means probably that there were Gentiles there. Probably this is a great number of people. Why are they coming to Jesus? Because they want to be healed of their diseases. Some people are demon-possessed and coming to Him, and He's casting out demons. They're touching Him because power is coming out of Him. His fame has grown, and everyone is hearing about Jesus and the wonders that He's doing. But we're introduced to this sermon with the phrase, looking at His disciples, in verse 20. I take that to mean that this sermon is directed primarily at people who call themselves Christians, who are followers of Jesus. The point of the sermon is to tell you, this is what a faithful follower of Jesus Christ might look like. This is the kind of life that you should expect to live. And these are the kinds of people who are blessed. The very first thing he mentions is, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, how do we understand this? J.C. Ryle has said this, we must not for a moment suppose that the mere fact of being poor and hungry and sorrowful and hated by man will entitle anyone to lay claim to an interest in Christ's blessings. The poverty here spoken of is a poverty accompanied by grace. The want is a want entailed by faithful adherence to Jesus. The afflictions are the afflictions of the gospel. The persecution is persecution for the Son of Man's sake. Amen. What we have here are a list of external circumstances, and those external circumstances aren't in themselves necessarily blessings. There were many people who, throughout the history of the church, have thought that was the case. In the early church, in particular, there were there were people who were called holy men who went out into the desert. They took a vow of poverty. They lived up on top of poles and did all kinds of crazy things, thinking that that was the way to have God's blessing. But that's not exactly what he means. It's not just the external circumstances. There are some people in life who are poor who have no faith. And for them, poverty is not a blessing. There are some people who are rich who, although it is rare, are also rich in faith. Here's what James has said. Now, James has a whole diatribe against the rich in James chapter 5, but earlier in James 2, this is what he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The point is not poverty or riches. The point is whether you're rich in faith. Proverbs, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs, 30, verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What's the point there? The point is that the extremes, the extremes can be a detriment to your faith. Extreme poverty that, that leads you to steal, 
It's a detriment. Extreme riches that leads you not to be dependent on the Lord, it's, that's a danger. John Bunyan, who spent many years in prison for his faith, once said that what God says is best is best, though all the men in the world are against it. Today, people say, if you're poor, you, ought to, you should be rich. If you're hungry, you should want to eat the best kind of food. If you're sorrowful, you should want to laugh. If you're persecuted, you should want to be on top. But that's not the case in Jesus' kingdom. Here's an example. It perhaps is not an example many of us will ever undergo, but imagine being a missionary. Imagine taking your family and your, your children and going to an impoverished nation. And you come back and you have to beg for money. You have to beg for support. The world looks at that and says, woe to you, you fool. You fool, look what you are doing with your life and for the lives of your children. Jesus says, you're blessed. He also says, blessed are you who are hungry. Now, does he mean if you're starving without any food, you're blessed? No. I think it means what Psalm 42 means when it says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Jesus would say in John 6 that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I still get hungry and thirsty physically. It's not the kind of hunger and thirst Jesus is talking about. It's a spiritual hunger and thirst for the Word of God. Here's the way it might look in, in someone's life that they take the food that they have and they share it with the hungry. Or they take the money that they could have used to buy even nicer food and they give it away. Or they purchase Bibles because they're hungry for God's Word and so they share it. I had a, a friend, and this really applies to the next verse, when Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. What kind of weeping is Jesus talking about? I had a friend in seminary, and he was recently, a couple years ago, called to plant a church in the, in the OPC in Virginia. And I saw him recently, and one of the things he said was that his, his church wanted to go and teach English as a second language in the library. Not, not even preach, just teach English in the local library. And when they found out that he was a pastor and that the people were coming wanted, were going to be people from his church, they made it incredibly hard and difficult for him just to te teach English in the library. And he was grieving over this. He was sad over this. Jesus says, you are blessed. What are the kinds of things we should be weeping over? This is what Kent Hughes has said. We're called to weep over lost souls, over people who will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We're to weep over the world's misery, over the injustice that falls in so many helpless people, over the unfairness that victimizes the weak, over child abuse, over battered women, over adultery, over divorce, over betrayals, over rejection, over loneliness, over those who now laugh but who, unless they turn to Christ, will suffer God's condemnation forever. We weep now 
But look forward to the eternal joy that will be ours in heaven because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to look out and weep over the injustice of today and look for one day when this upside-down world will be put right side up. Now, a couple of examples would be, I think, Simeon and Anna. Now, it doesn't say that they were weeping, but Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think he was sorrowful that God had not spoken in 400 years. Anna never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. We are to be a people who hungers after God's Word. I'm going to skip for a moment verse 22 and 23 because I want to focus on the woes for a minute. Woes. What are we supposed to understand by these woes? One of the commentators has said this. The Greek word woe-oi is more of a word for lamentation than condemnation. It means something like alas or how terrible. It's an expression of regret and compassion. Jesus saw how tragic it was for people to live their own way rather than God's way, which is the only way of blessing. When we look out and we see people who are living for the glories of this world, we're tempted to say they're going to, have, they're going to get what's coming to them. And that might be true. But we're also to have compassion and regret. And I think that's what Jesus' attitude was towards people who were lost. He had compassion. Yes, he said, woe but there was also compassion. Now, does Jesus mean simply that everyone who's rich and everyone who's well-fed now and everyone, (laughs) excuse me, everyone who's laughing now are going to hell? I don't think that's what he means. I think that what he means could be seen in the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that story later on in the book of Luke? The rich man is rich of the things of this world. He has a servant named Lazarus. He's always ordering the servant around, but he's only rich in this world. And when he dies, he goes to hell, and he has no name. He's still upset and bitter and angry. And Lazarus has a name, and he has a place in heaven, and there's an eternal chasm between the two. What Jesus is talking about are the people who are only rich here, who find their, their wealth in, only in dollars and cents, the people who are fed, well-fed here, and that's all they have. They're, they love food, but that's, that's all they're glorying in. By the way, I don't think that it means laughing is always bad. I love to laugh, and it's really hard for me not to crack jokes when I'm in the pulpit. Uh, it really is. But I I try not to because it's supposed to be a time of reverence in which we're focused on the Lord. I don't think he means that all comedy is bad. I don't think it's all all comedy sinful. The, the, The reality is the context. What he's talking about are people who take nothing seriously, including things they should take seriously, like the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. People like the boy who cried wolf, who always takes what is serious and makes a joke out of it, and then when he should be serious, nobody believes him. 
Finally, let us consider persecution in verses 22 and 23, and also the woe in verse 26. How are we to understand this? Jesus is telling you, this is the kind of life that you should expect to have. People who follow me will be hated, excluded, reviled. Their name will be spurned as evil. He teaches this elsewhere, by the way. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul teaches something similar. 2 Timothy chapter 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now, what this has looked like in the past, let's pray that it doesn't look like this in the present or the future, but what it has looked like is when Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer are burned in 1555, and I could use many other examples, the world looks at them and says they're cursed. But Jesus looks at them and says they're blessed. When Machen is excluded, he's tried and convicted and suspended in the Presbyterian Church and defrocked in 1936, he's blessed. He's blessed. This is what the disciples themselves were rejoicing over in in Acts chapter 5. When the apostles are beaten by the Sanhedrin, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Our example given by Jesus himself in verse 23 are the prophets. This is the way the fathers treated the prophets. And woe to the, in verse 26, woe to those who treat people like the false prophets. There are stories of um, false prophets in the Old Testament, and I should have looked it up and I forget, but there's one particular false prophet or true prophet, and the king of, I believe it was Judah, says, I don't want to call that, that prophet because he always speaks bad news. So I'm not going to call that prophet. So he gathers all the false prophets around him to tell him what he wants to hear. So what was the ministry of the prophets like? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a good idea. Time would fail to tell tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You hear that? And it's tempting to read it almost in a boy, boyish way and say, I want to be like those guys. Consider the glories. Who wouldn't want to conquer kingdoms and stop the mouths of lions to escape the edge of the sword? This looks like they're the G.I. Joes of the kingdom. But then you read the reality. It says, others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Do you want to be a prophet? Do you want to live the life that Christ has promised to bless? 
it can come with a tremendous cost. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but I am saying it's the reality. I want to leave you with a couple of dangers to be aware of. The first danger, and while it's not spoken of in our text, I think it's an implication. One of the first dangers is that people today downplay the possibility and likelihood of persecution. We do this especially in America because we like prosperity. We like wealth. Even people in ministry who are pastors often seek a kind of glory in the world. They seek book deals and conferences and get their name out so they can have a kind of worldly fame and even a kind of honor. Christianity can be made into a kind of business which you profit from. It's a danger that everyone needs to be aware of. And in those kinds of pastors and circumstances, the idea of suffering goes out the window. It becomes something else other than following Jesus. It's a danger. And another danger, of course, which may be even more, we may be more susceptible to, is to read verses like this and think that we can boast about tomorrow and think that if persecution is to come, well, we are going to triumph in a glorious way and that it is immediately going to mean the flourishing of our church and even our families. It's a naive view, and I would have us to consider someone like Peter. Do you remember Peter, what Peter says? Other people will deny you, Jesus. I will never deny you. I would be even willing to die for you. Then the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes out a sword when people come to take Jesus away. He takes out a sword and he chops off Malchus's ear. What is he thinking? He's thinking that the kingdom of the Messiah is a triumphal kingdom in which will mean immediate power and glory. And Jesus says, put away the sword. He's led away to be crucified. It tells us in Mark 14, verse 50, that they, all the disciples fled. We're told later that Peter denies Jesus that same night. What do you see when the disciples scatter? I think, I'm reading into it, but in, when I read the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels, I think there is a silence there, and what you see is the psychology of persecution. The disciples are disillusioned. They're afraid. They're despairing, perhaps dreading. They're, they're thinking, how could the, someone who follows the Messiah, the Messiah, be suffer, suffer and die? How could that be? I think they're disillusioned. It's true that later on when Jesus is raised, Peter and the Spirit is poured out, Peter will preach and will be persecuted for the gospel. But not, after he's, not until after he's fallen. So for the people who want to boast about tomorrow and as if they know exactly how everything is going to play out, I just want to ask... How do you really know that you are going to be one of the ones left standing if that day ever comes?
Do you really know what it's going to be like? Let me leave us with this. The only way that we will enjoy the blessings that Christ offers here is not by seeking the externals. It's not by seeking to be persecuted. It's not by seeking to be poor or seeking to go hungry or seeking to be um, sorrowful. It's, in fact, to seek Christ first. And in seeking Christ and in having a relationship with Jesus, all of the blessings will be found. In having a relationship with Jesus, then all of the externals can, in fact, turn out to be Christ-enhancing, Christ-exalting. You can, indeed, find a richness even in the poverty, but not without Christ. The irony of this whole thing is that we not only have an upside-down kingdom, we have an upside-down king. What kind of king who is infinitely rich would give all of his wealth away? What kind of king who has every kind of food imaginable willingly gives it all away and starves himself? What kind of king who could laugh all day long makes himself sorrowful, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? What kind of king who has all the power in the world gives it up and becomes persecuted and undergoes the wrath of God? Our king does that. He does that, why? For you and I, so that when we are poor, we can find our richness in Christ. So that when we feel guilty because of our sins, we can see the cross and know that we are indeed forgiven. Or when we are hated and reviled and spurned and people drag our name through the mud, we don't have to say, woe to us. We can say, we are blessed. We can laugh in the midst of the sorrow. So how is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ today? Have you found your joy? Have you found your blessings in him? I encourage you to do so. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Put your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for the upside-down kingdom. We confess before you that we often want the things that the world offers. We call ourselves Christians, and yet, oh Lord, we want to be rich. We want to be full. We want to have all the kinds of worldly glories and honors that this world provides, and we pray you would forgive us for that. Help us to see what it really means to follow the Lord. Help us to find our blessings and our hope in Him. We confess that we, we often want not true riches in Christ. We want other things. We do pray that you would not only protect us, if that is even a prayer that we should pray, but Lord, that whatever comes in this life, that you would cause us to find our joy even in the midst of it. We are called to consider trials of various kinds as joy. 
And we confess we don't know how to do that without you. We pray this not for our glory, but for the glory and fame of the Lord Jesus Christ, the upside-down king who had everything and gave it all up for us. We pray that his glory and honor and fame would stretch to the ends of the earth and that we would willingly undergo whatever in this life you see fit to give us. All for the Lord Jesus Christ's glory. In Jesus' name, amen.